Before we get into Ephesians chapter 1, though, just, I just wanted to give a personal um, little quick testimony, I guess it is. So, uh, if you... Is this mic feeding back a little bit? Hmm? No? Um, if you were here a couple weeks ago, um, you, you were he- here for this, this message we did called Ready, and we were talking about something that God's... Um, been putting on our hearts, we believe, saying, hey, I'm, I'm going to be really pouring out my spirit in a powerful way in the next, like, year, 18 months, and bringing people into my family, saving people, and I want you guys to be ready. And so we preached what we, we called an audible. You know, we preached what we felt like a, was a thing from God, and there was these, like, each letter of the word ready, spelled wrong with an I at the end, had a, a kind of a, a, an exhortation behind it. And we really felt like it was not just for the staff, but for the church. Um, and the moral of the story is this. Don't ever preach a sermon that you yourself are not willing to obey. Because um, the next morning, I was sitting with the Lord. I was praying, and the Lord was like, hey, Don, remember that sermon you preached yesterday? And I was like, oh, yeah, it was good, huh, Lord? And uh, he was like, yeah, that was, that was my truth for the church. And I was like, yeah, so glad we spoke that to the church. The church needed that, huh? And he was like, yeah. Y'all needed that. And I was like, what do, you, what do you mean you all needed that? And he was like, no, Don, I want to, I want to talk to you about that, that, last little, that last little part. And uh, it was the, the part of the sermon I felt like was, if I could use the word prophetic, and not like a weird trippy way even, just prophetic means a specific word from God spoken to a specific people at a specific time. Really felt like that's what it was. And I just said, hey, I think there's some things. It was on the I about invest intentionally. Felt like there's some things that God is doing in, I said, your lives, our lives, um, that are the divine things. There's other things that are good things, um, but they're not divine for, at least for this season. Those things need to rest, and we need to double down on the divine things for this season. And letting the good things rest is going to hurt a little bit, but it's all right because the blessing from the double down is by far going to make up for any perceived loss of letting the good but not divine things rest for this season. And God, like, spoke it back to me word for word to the point where I was like, Lord, are you preaching my sermon to me? <laughs> like, is that what's happening right now? And uh, I felt like he, he said, I felt like he's asking me kindly, gently, lovingly asking me, to let music, my music, rest for um, this season, specifically for the purpose of him having space in my life to do some really deep, good heart work that he is doing. If you don't know, um, I, I write songs and tour and put out albums and stuff like that throughout the year in addition to being full-time here. And it's something that's very life-giving to me. It's a deep, integral part of who God's made me to be. Um, something I believe he's called me to do, and he's used. I mean, thousands and thousands of people have come to know Jesus, and I've been able to be a part of that through my music. Like, some really profound stuff has happened, and so it's a very huge personal part of who I am as a Christian, who I am as a person, and, but um, I believe God was just saying, hey, it's, it's good, but it's just not divine for this season. So I don't know how long that season will last. I know it's going to last at least a year. could be longer, but I feel like it's the close of a chapter, in the life of my music, um, which for any of you who have been connected to my music for a while, um, that's like a, 
a big deal for me, you know what I mean? I feel like there's a, a closing of a chapter, and if and when he starts another chapter, that uh, it'll be not only at the perfect time, but exactly what he wants it to look like, and from a different foundation, from a different start, like a new chapter would be in a book. So I tell you that, one, just because I love you guys, I want you to know that, and I, you know, some of you guys are connected to my music throughout the years, and um, thank you for your faithfulness and support in that, uh, but also just... I'm just putting myself with us as, like, part of the body of Christ. Like, uh, let's allow God to speak to us, you know, and then let's obey. There's a blessing in the obedience, and it's going to hurt a little bit. But let's double down on the divine things in this season. And the good things that are just not divine for right now, let's, let's let them rest. And it's going to hurt a little bit. I'll personally testify to that. It's going to hurt a little bit. But the blessing from the double down is going to make up for any perceived loss. Amen? Ephesians chapter 1. We're in a series called Kingdom Kids, looking at verses 15 through 17. I'll be reading and preaching from the CSB, except for one passage that I'll be reading from a different translation. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 15. Paul writing, obviously, this is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. The title of the sermon is Knowing Him Through the Spirit of Wisdom and Revelation. Let's pray together. Lord, knowing you, like for real, knowing you, is uh, the, the best treasure. It's better than the best stuff on earth. It's better than the most fruitful ministry or the most exciting career path or the most loving relationships. There is a surpassing knowledge of of knowing you deeply. This is what Paul is praying for the people, and so um, we ask, Lord, that you would, like you did in Ephesus, you would send the Holy Spirit to open up pathways into this kind of knowing you. You would do it even now. We ask that you would also open our ears to hear what you're saying to us, our hearts to receive it. Ask that you would go forth like a mighty warrior with your truth and slay every single lie that would try to exalt itself against you, who you are, what you're doing, what you're wanting to say. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul, if you've ever read his, his letters, he does this thing where um, he'll weave in and out of praise, and then he'll go to prayer, and then he'll talk about the promises of God, and then he'll, he'll go from teaching to discipline. And when I say weave, he really just kind of like weaves in and out. And there's not always like a dear Lord at the beginning of a prayer or an amen at the end of a praise. Um, and last week, you know, or in Ephesians, you know, it's no different here. Uh, last week, we, 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 we saw some of this where we were finishing up. Um, the first 14 verses of Ephesians. Billy taught the last couple verses in that section. And that whole section is this incredibly rich, dense, beautiful passage that in the original language is just one big, long, run-on sentence. No punctuation. It is this poetic praise for 14 verses. And he is going 
off about the work of God accomplished through his son Jesus and what that means for us. And contained in those 14 verses of poetic praise are also some of the most foundational promises for the children of God and truths about our identity as children of God, as kingdom kids, an identity that is found exclusively in Jesus. And if you missed any of those sermons leading up to this point, I would strongly encourage you to go back and listen to those at realityventura.com or on the podcast. And then today, in verses 15 and 16, and then into 17, we're in, we're in verses 15 through 17, he starts off in 15 and 16 by transitioning from praise about God to then praise about the church. It says he is thankful for the Ephesian church's faith in Jesus and how they're loving the body of Christ. And I think there's something to learn here for us in prayer. He starts off by praising, right? Before he starts uh, petitioning anything, he starts with some praise because we ought to enter into the courts of God with thanksgiving and praise. And then he starts asking for some stuff in verse 17 through 19. And we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at these three verses. But today we're just going to zero in on verse 17. I'm going to read it again. I pray that the Lord, I'm sorry, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul is praying that God would give something to the church in Ephesus. He starts this prayer by the request for a gift, if you will. And wherever there's a gift, there's always a giver, right? And who is the giver here? He tells us the glorious Father. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you. All three Ephesians, we've been talking about the fact that the kingdom of God looks like family. And in this kingdom, there's a king, but he's actually a father, And in this kingdom, they're citizens, but they're actually the father's children. And just like in a normal family, how family starts with father, so does the kingdom family of God. And this is where Paul's prayer begins, with father. And what kind of father is he? Because we need to know this. He says he's a glorious father. What else? Well, we know that God, at the base of of his existence is love. First John 4 says, God is love. Not just that he's loving, but that he is love, as you would expect when the Bible tells us that he's our father. Love is the core essence of who God is. And so then everything he does is in turn from this essence, from this foundation of love. We see in John 3.16, it is God's love that moves him to send his son. In John 15, it is God's love that moves him to hang his life on the cross. In Hebrews 12, it is even his love that moves him to discipline us. In John 11, it is even his love that moves him to wait, to show up with Mary and Martha to do what they had asked him to do, which means that it is his love when he says no to us or not yet to us, which means that before we go any further, somebody needs to hear today that everything God does in your life and everything God chooses not to do in your life, he does from a foundation of love. And Paul knows this kind of love. He will pray two chapters later that the Holy Spirit would come and move in Christians' lives in order to begin to bring us into a personal experiential knowledge of this love. The kind of love that Paul himself experienced from the first day that he met Jesus. Remember, Paul was a murderer of Christians. And on his way to murder Christians in Damascus, Jesus comes and knocks him off of his horse reveals himself to him, forgives him, saves him, brings him into his family, and then sends him out to go and bring that same grace, love, and forgiveness to the very people that he was trying to murder. That is God's love. 
And that is a God of love. Paul knows this love. And so he is asking this God of love who always gives to his children from a heart of love to now give something to the church. He's a God of love. But in this passage, he uses this word glorious to describe this Father, this God of love. Glorious Father. I pray that the Lord, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father. Some of your translations may say the Father of glory. And as far as I can tell, this is the only time this phrase is ever used when talking about God. And it's so appropriate because if you remember, Paul just finished these first 14 verses and he's on this like Holy Spirit high, right? He's kind of tripping. You, you see it when you read it in the original language because there's no punctuation. He's just like going off and it is the most Christocentric, dense passage of scripture in all the New Testament. And he's going off. He's, woo, he's on oh, the glory of God. And then all of a sudden he like slows down in verse 15. He starts putting punctuation back in in the original language. And it's like his cadence, like, whew, like he's coming off of a high almost, right? And it's like he starts to slow down and he's like, yeah, oh, yes, the glorious Father, the glorious one, the magnificent Father, the mighty one, the, 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 the glorious one, the one who I can't comprehend. Oh, that's the one I'm asking. That's the one I'm asking, the glorious one. The glorious Father would give to the church a gift. And the gift the spirit of wisdom and revelation. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Who is the spirit of wisdom and revelation? The Holy Spirit is the spirit of wisdom and revelation. It's just another title or characterization of who he is. And how do we know it's the Holy Spirit? Well, Paul was just talking about the Holy Spirit in his last breath, right? Billy looked at it last week with us. Paul says in the previous verses, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our uh, guarantee of our future inheritance. And so he just continues on talking about the Holy Spirit, but he just characterizes him, uses a different attribute when he's talking about him, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. In other words, he is the one who brings wisdom and revelation. But what kind of wisdom and revelation of what? If you have a Bible or an app, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And this will give us some insight into what Paul is talking about when he says the spirit of wisdom and revelation. If you don't bring your Bible to church, you should do that. It's a good place to bring your Bible. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to use Scripture to interpret Scripture right here, which is the right way to interpret Scripture. What kind of wisdom and revelation of what? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, when you get it, say, got it. Nice. Here in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul's talking about, uh, he's reminiscing about when he came and first preached to the church in Corinth. I'm going to read it from the New King James. It just says it perfect. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 4, he says, And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but, he's contrasting here, but in demonstration of the Spirit, and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, contrast, but in the power of God. However, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age. And so there's this contrast, right? There's this contrast going back and forth. Paul is contrasting human wisdom that comes with men with the power of God that comes from the Spirit. It goes on in verse 7. 
But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. So stop right here. He says there is hidden wisdom. Paul calls it a mystery. So here's my question. If you have something that is hidden, something that is mysterious, but it is not hidden or intended to be a hidden mystery forever, then what needs to happen in order for it to not be hidden anymore? Revelation, right? Revelation is necessary for the mystery to be understood. It needs to be revealed. And remember back in our passage in Ephesians 1:17, Paul is praying that Father would give the church the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And when Paul speaks of this thing here in 1 Corinthians, this wise, hidden, mysterious plan, he's specifically talking about God's redemptive plan, God's plan of sending Jesus to redeem humanity. This is the mysterious, wise, hidden plan that Paul is referring to. He goes on, we're going to skip verse 8, go to verse 9. It is written... Eye has not seen. He's continuing to talk about this. Yes, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, God's mysterious plan of redemption, of how the Messiah would come, go through the line of King David, come to earth, heal people, bring in the lost sheep of Israel, show people what the Father was like, die on the cross to to take away our sin and bring us back into relationship with God, and then rise from the dead, bring in orphans back into the family of God. This mysterious plan of redemption has been hidden. And then that it wouldn't stop there with the Jews, but Paul, no doubt, tripping out as a religious Jew who didn't like Gentiles. Jews didn't like Gentiles. They were at odds with each other. He's like, and you get to come too. God's bringing you into the promise of Israel. What? Like the mysterious, hidden, tripping out, redemptive plan of God. That God would save not only Israel through the Messiah, but that the Gentiles would be grafted in to this promise. But this plan of redemption was hidden. No eye could see it, it said. No ear could hear it. And then Paul says, every plan, all the plans of God are hidden. Not just the redemptive plan, but all of God's plans are hidden. Nobody knows what they are. Because who could know the mind of the Lord? His thoughts are high above our thoughts. His ways are high above our ways. Who can know what he's up to? What he's doing? How he's working? Why he's doing it? All the plans of God are hidden. Which is kind of a bummer to me. But it's not a bummer. Because it goes on in verse 10. It says, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit. So I'm going to read it again, starting in verse 9. I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. The wise, mysterious plans of God are hidden, but the spirit reveals them to us. The wise, mysterious plans of God are hidden until The Spirit reveals them to us. And God has revealed this mysterious, wise plan of redemption to us. And when I have no clue what God is up to, when I'm in the middle of the fire, or I'm in the middle of the waiting, or I'm wondering where God is when such and such is happening, or when God is asking things to take a rest in my life, things that are good, like music, I want to know, Lord, what are you doing? Or at least I want to know what you think about me in the middle of it or how you feel about me in the middle of it. 
I need the Spirit, is what Paul is saying, because, goes on, the Spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. I want to know, Lord, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? What are you doing? For what man knows the things of man except the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now, verse 12, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. Paul is praying over in Ephesians chapter 1, 17, our passage today, that the church would be given the Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. What kind of wisdom and revelation of what? The kind of wisdom and revelation that unveils God's mysterious and wise plans for those who love him. Now, this is not the kind of wisdom that God gives us to know what school we should go to or what job we should take or what school we should send our kids to. God does give us that kind of wisdom. But in this passage today, Paul is talking specifically about the wisdom that reveals the heart and plan of God, specifically as it refers to our redemption and our salvation. It's the kind of wisdom that Paul will speak of in Ephesians 3.10 when he says that the redemptive plan of God revealed the manifold wisdom of God. Raise your hand if you've ever seen a diamond. All right, cool. So here's the cool thing about diamonds. Anytime you look at a diamond in any way, you get a new view of its glory. It is manifold. It's the word that's used there when he speaks of in Ephesians 3. The manifold, multifaceted, literally, wisdom of God to where you look at this plan of God from new directions and you start to see the new glory of it in a new way. That is the kind of wisdom that Paul is talking about here. The manifold, multifaceted, diamond-like wisdom of God. So, a glorious father is the giver of this gift. The gift is the Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. But what's the whole point of this? What is the goal, if you will, of the giver giving the gift? The goal is the knowledge of God. Read it again. Back in Ephesians 1.17, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. In the knowledge of him. The New, New Living Translation says it so simply and rightly, that you might grow in your knowledge of God. What kind of revelation? The kind of revelation that reveals God's mysterious, wise, redemptive plan. But to what end? To the knowledge of God. The end goal of God's mysterious and wise plan of redemption is that those who are redeemed would know him. Okay, let me say that again because there's a nuance that I want you to catch. The end of God's mysterious and wise plan of redemption is that those who are redeemed would know him. That he would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation is what Paul is saying. In the knowledge of him, specifically in the epinosis, that is the experiential, the Greek word for experiential knowledge of him. Knowledge that goes beyond understanding God with the mind to experiencing God with the heart. The Greek words for knowledge or for knowing God that are most often used in, uh, in the New Testament are the words epinosis or then the verb form epinosko and then gnosis or the verb form nosko. Both words come from the same uh, Greek root word and has the same meaning of knowledge that leads to relationship. 
knowledge that leads to relationship. Now, we must use the mind. We must use the mind. Because knowing God is not some esoteric, external experience with God. Knowing him experientially involves us knowing the truth of who he is. And the truth of God is revealed in the word of God, which requires the mind to comprehend. We need the mind. However, the mind is the transport to the heart. We can't stop at the mind because the word of God is not just words on a page that can be comprehended with the mind. The word of God is a person intended to be experienced with the heart. Jesus, John 1 says, is the word of God. The word of God is a person. See, you can have a purely cerebral, no experiential relationship required interaction with the Bible. But you can't do that with Jesus. You can't just know about Jesus. You need to know Jesus. And that's what Paul is praying here for, the epinosis, experiential knowledge of God. Paul knew God with the mind before he met Jesus, but he was brought into this experiential knowing of him with the heart. And so, Paul is praying that our glorious Father would give to us the Holy Spirit who is the spirit of wisdom and revelation in order that we might have deep, meaningful relationship with him. If you don't believe me, we're going to look at Jeremiah 31 uh, where God in the Old Testament talks about what the new covenant would look like when Jesus would come, when the Messiah would come and purchase the new covenant, what the attributes of the covenant would be. He's speaking to his people, Israel, and he's saying, I'm bringing in a new covenant. It's not going to be like the old covenant. The old covenant was a covenant of rules and regulations. This is going to be a covenant of love and relationship. The covenant that we have been grafted into. Jeremiah 31 will be up on the screen, starting in verse 31. He says, look, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This is the covenant I will make. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. So real quick, I'm going to stop right here. This is part of the covenant, right? It's a heart thing. So I'm going to write my teachings, and some translation says, write my law on their hearts. Ezekiel 36 says, says it like this, that uh, he's going to take out the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. The Spirit is going to come into us and give us a heart of flesh, write his teachings on our hearts. That means that instead of God's people trying to obey his teachings— To be holy, God himself is going to make us holy and then produce holy living from the inside out. He would change our hearts and then our lives would follow. Righteous living would no longer be something to try to attain. Rather, it would be the fruit of a new heart that God would give us. It's like a heart transplant is what the new covenant is speaking of. And the next part is key here in Jeremiah 31, verse 33. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Okay, relationship. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Here it is. For they all will know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration, for I will forgive their iniquity so good and never again remember their sin. Stick with me here. The new covenant is not a covenant of rules and regulation, but of love and relationship. This is the covenant that Jesus purchased with his blood and put into effect when he died on the cross. What he purchased was access to intimacy. I'm going to read it again. No longer will each one teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all will know me. 
from the least of them to the greatest of them. You got to know what this word is, know me right here in Jeremiah 31. They all will know me. The, the Hebrew word for know here is this word yada. It speaks uh, not about knowing with the mind. It's not learning about it. It's talking about personal, intimate relationship. It's the difference between my wife, for instance, showing up at a, a restaurant and being like seeing some famous actor and being like, hey, hey I know you. I know you. Now, I know you. I saw you in that, in that one thing, right? Like, I know, in other words, I know about you. I know what you look like. I know, I know you. And then her talking to our five-year-old son, Kingston, and saying, Kingston, I know you. You were formed in my womb. I nursed you from the day you were born. I have been here for every single one of your victories and defeats, and I will be here until the day I die for every single one of them. Son, I know you. I know you. This is what Jesus purchased on the cross. Jesus didn't pay our tuition fees to make us a student who would learn about God. He paid our adoption fees to make us children who would be known by God, right? When the veil was torn, he didn't give us access to information. He gave us access to intimacy, that's what Jesus purchased. It was relationship. This word, to know, yada, in the Hebrew, is the same word that would be used when it says, and Adam went in and knew his wife Eve. In that context, speaking of sexual intimacy, the, the most uh, intimate thing that any human beings could ever experience. It speaks of intimate relationship. What Jesus purchased with his blood and inaugurated was a covenant of intimate, loving, gracious relationship. And what Paul is saying is that the Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, is the one who unveils to us God's mysterious and wise redemptive plan into this relationship. He is the one who reveals the pathways of knowledge, epinosis, experiential knowledge of God. And it's critical for us to see that Paul says here uh, that, the, that he would send, that God would send the, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And doesn't just say, I'm praying that you'd know God experientially and intimately. Instead, he tells us the method by which we can know God experientially, intimately. It is by the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's good for me to know this because here's the deal. God is unfathomable. I can't know him. Who can know the mind of God? He is unfathomable, which means that in, uh, which means that in our fallen state, he is unknowable by the human heart. The reason God has to give us a heart transplant in order to know him is because the unredeemed heart cannot know him. That's why the love and gospel of God is foolishness to those who are perishing. They have an old heart. They have an old heart. Of course they can't know the love of God. Of course the gospel seems like foolishness. There's no words that could convince them. They need the Holy Spirit to come into their heart and give them a new heart in order for them to see and know God. And if you're a follower of Jesus who's put your trust in Jesus, then this is what's happened to you. This is what has happened to you. You've been given a new heart. And it was a heart, though, that was put in you for the end goal of knowing God. Not knowing about God. Deeply, actually knowing God in meaningful, intimate, living relationship. That's what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about diving into the depths of God. Many of us are Christians. Maybe most of us are Christians. We've been born again. We've been sealed by the Spirit. We're in the family of God. We're kingdom kids. 
but we're ankle deep. We're in the pool, but we're standing at the stairs. And Paul is shouting from the deep end. Hey, come on in. Notice that Paul's not talking to non-Christians here. He's not praying for non-Christians about knowing God. He's writing back to a church that he planted seven years before and taught there for three years straight. These are people who know God. They're being persecuted in the first century. You were only a Christian in the first century if you were like, I'm going to follow God. They were doing good Christian stuff. They were doing good Christian stuff. They were having Bible studies. They were going to church. They were doing good Jesus stuff. He's writing to Christians. He's praying for Christians to know God. Which means that it is possible to be a part of a really good church and really good Christian community and not really know God. It is possible for you to do Jesus things without really knowing Jesus. He's praying for people like us. That our glorious Father would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we might experientially know him. I think so many of us are splashing around in the water of God's grace and it's good and it's fun. There's life there. There's joy there. But we're ankle deep. God, though, is a never-ending ocean of goodness and life and power and healing and glory and mystery. And he's inviting us to jump into the deep end. And I love that Paul doesn't even ask them if they want it before he prays it for them. He just knows that it's good for them. He knows that it's right for them. And he doesn't even tell them that they should want it. He just says, I know you need it. I know God wants it. And so I'm going to ask for it. Turn to your neighbor and say, you need it. You uh, you didn't do it right. Turn to your neighbor and say, you need this. Okay, look. You might say, I'm good. I don't want to pray this for myself. Listen, just pray it for your neighbor. Everybody pray it for their neighbor. Okay? We could join in with Paul in saying, yeah, I want to pray this for the church. They may not know they need it, but I know they need it. I know they need it. I know God wants it, and so I'm going to ask for it. Listen, guys, we were created and saved for this, to know God deep, not up here, deep in here, an intimate, personal, living, interacting, back and forth relationship with God. This is what Jesus died for, and this is the most satisfying place to live. And every good thing comes from this place. At least every good eternal thing that actually matters comes from this place. You want to do something meaningful with your life? You want your life to be something powerful that has some kind of eternal meaning? You don't need a degree. You don't need experience. You don't need a miracle. You don't need to be healed. You don't need more time. You need intimacy. Because in the kingdom of God, all ministry flows from intimacy. All good, right, eternal perspective and vision flows from intimacy. All right perspective on life flows from intimacy. All power and clarity and boldness and authority and revelation flows from intimacy. This is what Jesus died for. And this is what Paul is praying for. And some of you need to know today that this is God's good and perfect will for you. Intimacy. God wants to teach you to swim 
in the deep end. No, he doesn't want to teach you. You already have everything you need to swim in the deep end. He just is inviting you to jump in. He's just asking you to jump on in. Some of you have been stuck in a mostly intellectual relationship with God for much of our, your life. Your relationship is like, it lives up here. You might not even be that smart, but it lives up here. <laughs> We're afraid of experiencing God and really letting him into the deep places because experience sounds like the unknown. And I like to know. Experience sounds like I'm out of control. and I like to be in control. Experience can sound dangerous. It can sound vulnerable. It's probably how the disciples felt when they're in the middle of the storm in the boat and Jesus shows up walking on the water and then one of their dudes decides to go out and walk on water with Jesus. Like, Peter, what are you doing, dude? Like, it's dangerous in the boat, but it feels pretty safe compared to walking out there. Peter, what are you doing? Like my mom said to me when I went skydiving a few years ago, Dom, I just don't understand why you would leave a perfectly good airplane. (laughs) And I said, Mom, because the jump is where the glory is. Peter, why would you leave a perfectly good boat, dude? Because the jump is where the glory is, guys. Not to mention that the jump is where Jesus is. And wherever Jesus is, that's where the goodness is. That's where the glory is. Not to mention, that's actually where the safety is. I know it seems dangerous to step out of the logical, safe, intellectual, practical way of living and relating to God that you've been living in, but that's your boat. Why would you leave a perfectly good boat? The boat's safe, Tom. It's safe over here. But listen, Jesus isn't calling you to safety. Jesus is calling you to intimacy. And it may feel unsafe, unstable, and unknown, but that's why we're called to walk by faith. He wants to make his home in our hearts, is what Paul's going to pray two chapters from now, to Christians, that Christ would make his home in the heart, not just in the mind, not in the body, not just even in the life, but in the heart, the very core of who you are, where your personality lies, where the deepest hidden things are, where your emotions lie where deep pain and insecurity lies, where past hurts and fears lie. That's where Jesus wants to make his home. I know it feels dangerous to let him do that, to let him go that deeply and be that deeply known by him. I know it feels like stepping out of the safe boat, but if we could just see that it's Jesus who's calling us, Jesus, creator and sustainer of heaven and earth, Jesus who is calling us out, then we'd realize The safest place to be is out there where he's calling us on the water. Because that's where he is. It's a lie that says, no, 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 it's safer in the boat. It's safer in the boat. A friend of ours was here a week ago. She was one of the main intercessors at Reality Carp in the very beginning. So key. We love her. She's an incredible woman. And uh, she hadn't been here in nine years. And she saw this, this picture that she was like, I don't think it's for, you know, church last week. But as I was sitting this week, I was like, oh, dude, it's for, it's for right now. It's for somebody in this room who is going to be here right now on this Sunday. And she was a very simple but, I believe, prophetic picture. And she just saw somebody sitting down, and they had a safety belt strapped across them. They thought it was keeping them safe. But what it really was was a chain. It was just a chain actually keeping them in bondage. It appears that it is keeping you from harm. 
but it's actually keeping you from loving, living relationship. It appears that it's keeping you safe, but it's actually keeping you in bondage. It appears that it's keeping you from danger, but it's keeping you from love. Jesus is inviting you to step out of the boat of perceived safety and step into his arms. Because God didn't adopt you, child of God, to move into the house and live in the entryway and sleep on the couch. He's in the master suite. He's like, hey, my door's open. And when Jesus said it is finished and the veil was torn in two, I said, come on in. Come on in. My door's always open. My light's on 24-7, and I'm always waiting for you. I'm always waiting for you. You are a kingdom kid. You are in the family of God. And I think there's somebody here today who needs to know that you've been living in the house, and you put your trust in Jesus, man. You put your trust in Jesus. You've stepped in. You're in his family. He loves you. You know it. You love him. But you haven't even unpacked your bags yet. You haven't even unpacked your bags and really moved in. Stop sleeping on the couch. You're not a foster kid. And you're not visiting. You belong in this house. You belong in this house. You are a child of God. Stop living like a foster kid. Stop living like you're going to get kicked out someday. Some of you have been... Every time God invites you to his table for intimacy, you're like, no, nah, I'm going to show up later. And you come and just like take the crumbs from the table because you're scared of intimacy or you're so full of shame that you're like, I don't belong there. I don't belong there. He's like, no, you don't. But my son does and you are in him. So yes, you do. Yes, you do belong here. Yes, you do belong here. Because Jesus belongs there. Jesus is the perfectly righteous son of God. And you, when you put your trust in him, were placed in him. You are in Christ. In Christ. That means that how God sees you now is perfectly righteous, perfected forever, just like Jesus. Because of the finished work that Jesus accomplished on the cross. Don't tell me I'm too, I've done too much. I'm too full of shame. I get it. Yeah, you have done too much. But Jesus did more. Jesus did more, right? He, he has separated your sin as far as the east is from the west. God says, come, beloved. I've buried it in the deepest ocean. I don't even remember it anymore. Stop living like a stranger and foreigner and visitor in my house. You're my child. This is your home. Everything I have is yours. All that I have is yours. This is what God invites us into, Christian. And if you're not a Christian yet... This is what God invites you into. This is what God invites you into. This is the kind of knowledge of God that Paul is speaking of. And this is what I pray that the Holy Spirit brings us into. So I'm going to pray that now for us, just like Paul did. And if you don't want to pray it for yourself, just pray it for your neighbor. But I do hope that your eyes would be open to see it's Jesus who's calling you which means that you can trust him and that you would receive the answer to this prayer today. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give to every single person in this room the spirit of wisdom and revelation that they may know you deeper that they may experientially know you past the head and into 
the heart. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come now. And I ask that you would slay every lie that tries to exalt itself above the knowledge, the knowing, the intimate knowledge of God. I just want to say out loud that the need to be in control is a lie because Jesus is already in control. That means you, you're free to not be. I want to say out loud that the lie that you're hearing right now of like, I don't know, it's just safer over here though. That, that's perceived safety. The safety belt is actually a chain. It's actually keeping you in bondage. Today, hit the, hit the unlock, unbuckle button. Let that thing off. I want to speak out this lie that says uh, that the boat is the better life because it's safer and it's comfortable and you know it and you can control it. No, walking on water is the better life. I see a perfect love would come and drive out fear right now, Lord. Fear is a liar. I want to expose the lie that says that Jesus, um, that he's, he's not going to come through. The truth is Jesus is already working while you're waiting. We ask, Lord, that you would help our unbelief in here. Thank you, Lord, that our unbelief doesn't change the truth of who you are. Like when the, the man came and said, Lord, heal my kid. I believe, but help my unbelief. I don't kind of believe, Lord. It didn't change the fact that you were the healer and that you could heal in a moment and that you would heal. Help our unbelief, Lord, and open our eyes to see you for who you really are. Because if we do, then we know we can trust you. Listen, if there's a Christian in here who uh, you've, been, you've been following God from a, a purely intellectual place and you're like, I, I, I don't want to experience that sounds scary and messy and I, nah, I'm going to live, I'm going to live, in, I'm going to live up here. I'm going to live in my head. And so when we talk about stuff like the nearness of God and the presence of God and a loving father and friends, those feel, things feel foreign to you. If that's you today and you're saying, no, dude, I, I want to I allow Christ to make his home in my heart, not just in my mind and my body. If that's you today, he's inviting you in. If that's you today and you're willing to take that step, would you just stand so I can pray for you? Is there somebody here like that? Yeah. That's right. Good job. You guys are brave. Would you just stay standing? If there's a person here today who you feel like you got your feet in the water, you're splashing around. You're ankle deep. It's good. But you know that God is calling you to dive into the deep end, to step in, step out of the boat, so to speak. And you want to take off that safety belt of perceived safety. You've been afraid of intimacy. You've been bound up by shame. And you want to dive into the ocean of who God is. You're saying, Lord, this scares me a little bit. I'm going to dive in, though. Would you stand and join these others?